Behind the Lens. Happy September. I'm Debbie Elias, film critic, creator, and host of Behind the Lens, where we go behind the lens, below the line, with the movers and shakers, the film and TV makers, the producers, the directors, the writers, the actors, the cinematographers, the costume designers, production designers, uh, stunt choreographers, uh, sound editors, sound mixers, film editors, um, composers, you name it. We talk to them, and we're going to be doing some talking in today's show with an exciting director with an, a terrific film out of South Africa. Uh, John Barker is going to join us at the midpoint of the show. I believe he's still in, at, in Toronto at the Toronto International Film Festival, where The Umbrella Men had its international premiere on Saturday to a sold-out crowd. And trust me, once you see this film, you're going to understand why it was a sold-out crowd. And I think there are two more show, two more screenings uh, of The Umbrella Men in, t- uh, in Toronto. So for anybody listening and any press that are up there, guys, uh, press colleagues of mine, if you, because ha- I know you're all you all want the big names, you want the A-listers. But take a look at these little indie gems. And The Umbrella Men is certainly one of them. It is a heist film set in South Africa, embracing the culture. But let me tell you, The Umbrella Men, they give Danny Ocean a run for his money. It's fabulous. So I can't wait to talk more about it uh, shortly. Um, Oh, I, I went brain dead there for a minute. Uh, I have to be, give a big shout-out to Sean over at Larry Edmonds, the, the best bookstore in Hollywood, for all of your ho- Hollywood history, uh, biographies, autobiographies, everything cinematic and film. You want to go to Larry Edmonds. Um, Ron Shelton, the wonderful Ron Shelton, writer-director of, you know, you know that film, Bull Durham, um, has written a book. Called the Church of Baseball, and uh, I am. If you're watching on the Facebook live feed right now, the Adrenaline Radio Facebook uh, live feed, you will see it on my tablescape. Or if you check on social media, I've posted a picture of today's tablescape. Anyway, um, yes, they were the wonderful people at Larry Edmonds got got me a signed copy of the Church of Baseball, and I have started reading it, and it is fabulous. And yes, for my attorney and former former minor league umpire, um, Brandon, yes, your copy is at home. This is my copy I'm displaying. Yours is pristine. Uh, So thank you guys over at Larry Edmonds. Uh, And hopefully in the coming weeks, we're going to have a a TCM fellow fan, Laura Gabriel. I'm trying to see if I can get Laura to call in about her new book. 
I remember when she first started was researching the book, uh, and we were sitting in Kate Manolini's in Beverly Hills talking about it. It is all about Marion Davies, uh, and that has just now released. So I'll stay tuned for that. I'm trying to get Laura on the show live uh, sometime next month in October. Uh, and that's another great book, which, of course, you can get at Larry Edmonds. Um, but so anybody pay attention to, D- to Disney this weekend? D23 Expo. Wow. Wow. Number one, I think everybody around the world has now seen the reunion of Indiana Jones and Short Round uh, for the first time in 38 years. Uh, I think that one picture is the picture to come out of D23 Expo. Um, It's fabulous. Fabulous. Uh, With our beloved Indy and Short Round now all grown up. And he's going to be joining the Marvel Universe. But some of the great news to come out of D23. Kevin Feige, of course setting the stage for Phase 5 of the MCU. And look forward to Ironheart, which is executive produced by Ryan Coogler. Uh, Of course, Black Panther Wakanda Forever is coming out later this year. There is now a special presentation of Werewolf by Night. Uh, A fun, scary film is described by... Uh, Mr. Feige. There's a new series called Secret Invasion, which will star Don Cheadle, who reprises his role of Rhodey, Colonel James Rhodes. Uh, Kobe Smulders will be there. Samuel L. Jackson. If you've got Nick Fury, you don't need anybody else. Uh, Ben Mendelsohn, who who is returning as his character of Scroll Talos. Uh, Olivia Coleman, Amelia Clark. Kingsley Benadire are also uh, on board for that one. It looks really good. The trailer is out there. All the trailers are out there for the ones that have trailers. Uh, Armor Wars is another project that Don Cheadle is in as Rhodey. Uh, nothing on that yet in terms of images. or It's too early for that. Season 2 of Loki is coming back. They're filming right now. Can't wait for that. And, of course, Kehu Kwan, Short Round, is now joining the MCU in Loki Season 2. And then there's Echo is a new project coming along. And I'm thrilled. Graham Greene, I will watch Graham Greene in anything. He is a true legend in the industry. Uh, there's also next year production will start on Daredevil Born Again. Uh, we've got the new Ant-Man movie is coming up February 17th of 2023. Fantastic Four opens November 8th of 2024. Uh, let's see. Captain America New World Order will hit theaters in 2024. And yes... Anthony Mackie is Captain America. Thunderbolts, the Thunderbolts, uh, will be with us opening July 26th of 2024. 
And it will star Julia, Julia Louis-Dreyfus, David Harbour, uh, Florence Pugh, Sebastian Stan, Wyatt Russell. So that's going to be fun. And then, of course, the Marvels. Uh, and that will open next year, July 28th, next year. And that will star Brie Larson returns as Carol Danvers, Captain Marvel. Just amazing, amazing stuff to come. Uh, and anybody that was down there, I haven't seen anything from anybody that didn't have a blast. And uh, I know George Pinocchio of ABC7. George had a lot of fun and actually got to hook up again with the woman who was the model for Tinkerbell Animation for Peter Pan. And she now has a book out. Um, and sadly, her name escapes me. I didn't write it down. But if you just Google Tinkerbell model or Google George, and he's got posts on all his social media platforms on Insta, on Facebook, uh, with pictures and all, that, all those details uh, about that. But a lot coming, a lot coming from Disney. Uh, it's going to be interesting, though, to see where what happens with Phase 5 of the MCU. Uh, and, of course, there's more Star Wars stuff coming. 20th Century it is just... 20th Century Studios has more films coming. Um, see How They Run is one of them that's, that's upcoming, releasing shortly, as a matter of fact. Uh, and, of course, we've got Avatar to look forward to later this year. Some big, big stuff that hopefully hopefully, throughout the rest of 2022 and through 2023 will keep building on the box office that moviegoers around the world really embraced and boosted this summer. Uh, so let's keep it going because cinemas are not dead. Um, they are very much alive and very, very necessary. So, there is my there is my soapbox about movie theaters and the joys of D23. Now, jumping in today's show, new movie is out, Wire Room. Wire Room, it's one of Bruce Willis's final films. Uh, in the lot that he had has been shooting over the past couple of years before he announced his retirement. This is his third film with director Matt Eskandari. Uh, the prior films that Bruce uh, did with Matt, Hard Kill, Survive the Night, Trauma Center. Um, and as you're going to hear me talk about with Matt, I really love Trauma Center. Um really love Trauma Center, and I really love Wire Room. Uh, Wire Room, written by Brandon Stiefer, and it is the story of, you know, uh, Homeland Security agents, played by Willis and Dylan, uh, Kevin Dylan, and uh, there's a, is another agent uh, named, uh, what, it, oh, Shelby Cobb, uh, who plays Noor, and she's the tech genius. Everybody's got to have the tech genius. And they are, there's surveillance set on this arm smuggling cartel member named Flynn, Eddie Flynn. 
And their mission is they have to keep him alive no matter what. They need information. They need to be led to the mastermind of this whole cartel. And they are, and they've got him under surveillance, and it's extreme surveillance. Cameras hidden all over his property, uh, and he himself knows people are after him, so he stays locked in his house, in his compound. And suddenly, a SWAT team descends on Flynn's house. And needless to say, madness and mayhem uh, ensue. But what we see unfold is this incredible dynamic between Kevin Dillon's character of Justin, who is sitting in the wire room, uh, and Eddie Flynn. They're communicating only via their surveillance uh, equipment. That, and uh, Eddie Flynn is played by Oliver Trevena, who's wonderful, wonderful. And to watch the chemistry develop between two people that are never in the same room together is outstanding. And it's a testament to Matt uh, as a director and to his editor, Chris Patterson, who you may know best for um, some of his work uh, on Zombieland, Double Tap. Bruce Willis as the senior um, agent, the senior uh, CIA agent. Uh, you know, he leaves, he leaves uh, Dylan's character, Justin, in charge. But then he gets called back and has to come back because of the madness and mayhem and the what the heck is going on scenario that's unfolding. It is action-packed. It is also a great thriller. But what I really appreciate and what you're, you'll hear Matt jump on in our con this conversation is how well he showcases Willis in this film. You know, having sh directed him for three films now, uh, out of this last batch over the past couple years, um, unlike some directors who I think did not show justice to Bruce and his legacy in some of their camera angles, and you could see earwigs and, and things along this line, um, Matt showcases him in the best possible light and really lets us see, you know, more than a few shades of the beloved action hero Bruce Willis uh, with snark of John McClane. Um, it's, a, it's a great film. I would love to see a sequel done. And, uh, you know, pairing up Kevin Dillon's character and Oliver Tre uh, Trevina's character. And I also have to say, a standout, almost comic performance from Cameron Douglas uh, as a, a security guard in the building where the wire room is. He is hilarious. It's not what you'd expect from Cameron Douglas, especially if you've just seen him in The Runner. Um, just all around, so well done. The Wire Room is out right now. It's available on digital. It's on VOD. Yes, even Comcast has it. Because uh, even though I've seen it, I paid another $6.99 so I could see it again. But now, without any further ado, because I know you're tired of hearing me blabber, uh, take a listen to my exclusive interview with Matt Eskandari talking about The Wire Room. Hey, Matt. 
Hey, how are you? Pleasure to connect. Thank you for watching the film. Oh, my God. I've seen all of your stuff, and especially the last groups that you've done with Bruce, Hard Kill, Survive the Night, and Trauma Center. I really love Trauma Center. i got to tell you. Thank you. Yeah, that was a great one. That was a fun one. It was, uh, you know, it was fun to shoot that in Puerto Rico, and Nikki, she really owned that one. She, she crushed it. Oh, Absolutely. But I do have to say to you, Matt, something that I so appreciate and that I know fans all over the world will appreciate is with these films, some of Bruce's final on-screen appearances, you have shown him in a very wonderful light. And you, you have given us so much of the snarky John McClane archetype that we have come to know and love after all these decades and i commend you for doing that pleasure thank you so much yeah i mean bruce is just one of those actors he just brings it i mean i don't have to do much i mean he's a legend for a reason uh my i feel like the, my favorite performance of his that i worked with was survive the night personally because he actually cried in that movie if mm-hmm. you check that out that's worth checking out but, um, but yeah, I mean, he's just, he, you know, you don't have to do much, uh, too much with Bruce. He's, he's a legend. So. But I just wanted to, to thank you and commend you for what you've done with these performances. And talking about performances, wow, Kevin Dillon, he's really coming into his own with some of these action films. Kevin Dillon and Oliver Trevena as Justin and Eddie. Are, they're never on screen in the same scene, but they are a kick in the ass in this film. This is a very visually complex film because you have the wire room, then you have Eddie's house, and you have all this surveillance footage. So to develop a dynamic, a chemistry that strong and entertaining as you did with uh, those two characters could not have been easy. So I'm curious how you worked with your DP, Will Barrett, and all, logistically, with shooting, with blocking this out, designing your visual tonal bandwidth to allow you to establish this great chemistry that, that fuels the story. Yeah, no, thank you for noticing that. I felt like uh, that was definitely one of the biggest challenges in the film was, you know, you have these two actors who share... 70 pages, but they never actually share a scene together, actually together on screen together. So it's kind of interesting how, you know, you, you have to really trust the actors and kind of let them kind of play with each other. One of the things that I did was Oliver, when he was playing Eddie on the phone, he he showed up on set and he would read the, can- the lines off camera mm. with Kevin. So I felt like that really, and, and that helped build their dynamic because Kevin could listen in and actually feel what Oliver was going to do, um, and it kind of it, it helped them kind of build that bond. And, um, and that was kind of the, the the most intriguing things for me was okay, how are how are we going to make this visually interesting for ninety minutes with such limited location? And you know, I worked with the DP Will and I. We decided okay, well, you know, we'll shoot the wire room first, and then we're going to go shoot the house. But instead of just shooting surveillance footage which was what was what it was in the script was the whole movie is just kevin talking to surveillance footage i was like well that's not going to be very visually interesting if it's just kevin talking to screen doll for 90 minutes like let's actually shoot those scenes as actual scenes mm-hmm. because then 
you'll be able to get into Eddie's head as well, and it'll almost feel like you're in his world, and then you're in Kevin's world, and then you're back to his world, and you can kind of get into both of their worlds so that you see them organically sort of build that chemistry as as the film goes along. So I think that was a smart choice on our on our um, behalf as filmmakers to do that. That was a brilliant choice, a brilliant choice, Matt, because that works so well. And it's also a testament not only to Kevin and Oliver, but also to Will and your camera operators, and then in editing, working with Chris Patterson, that we the facial expressiveness that we get from Kevin and Oliver, and also Cameron Douglas, who is just a hoot and a holler. But the facial expressiveness that we get with the characters of Justin and Eddie is it's hilarious but it's so telling as the two of them their minds are actually becoming one at a certain point of the film in terms of plotting and planning and logistics and that just adds another layer of emotion to this and i i just really appreciate how you did that yeah no i thought that was uh yeah it was great as well. A pleasure. Thank you for, for noticing that. But, um, but yeah, I mean, um, you know, it's one of those things where you go into it, no, no clue how it's going to kind of come off. And, you know, I've worked enough movies now. Yeah, this was my first time working with Chris as an editor, but he did a great job being able to hold those moments just long enough. You know, how much surveillance are you going to get and then cut away and then come back? And so it was, it was definitely a dancing choreography there with the editing. And I think he did a great job with that. Absolutely. You know, when you got the script for this one, did you do a lot of pre-production in this just because of the very nature of Eddie's house? And, of course, then working with your production designer, with David Dean Ebert, um, de- designing the wire room. Because you really, in the third act, you really make incredible use of the wire room as things yeah. truly escalate. So I'm curious about your pre-production process and working with your production designer in crafting this world. This world. Yeah, I feel like David did a really great job creating that wire room, making it visually interesting, adding variety to the looks. And every direction, I told him one of the edicts was every direction that I look into, make it look a little different. You know, we'll have the servers here, we'll have something else here, something else here, something else here. So yeah, there was. I wish there was more pre-production than we got, <laughs> but um, it was you know it was a decent chunk where. You know, we got to really kind of find the right location and then build our ideal wire room within that location. So I thought that was, uh, that's what really paid off in the end on screen. Now, I didn't count, but how many monitors did you have set up in the wire room? A lot. It was was annoying because we had to, in post, replace all those monitors with footage. So that (laughs) was a nightmare for VFX, but um, I think it was necessary to, to be able to make it feel real. Absolutely, and the VFX in that regard is so well done because we constantly see the monitors on rotation with the camera camera 1, camera 2, camera 3, camera 35. We are truly getting a full-scale sense of what this surveillance is on Eddie Flynn. And it really and I love that detail because if you look back on films, you know yourself. So often, those monitors, they don't change. When people are using surveillance stuff, it doesn't change or it just sits there. 
but you keep that visually engages us as we're watching. And I really like that you did that. So whatever time it took in VFX, well worth it. Thank you. Well, it's good to, it's good to know all that um, tedious work paid off, so I appreciate that. <laughs> when you get a script like Wire Room or Hard Kill or Survive the Night, how do you start breaking it down? Do you start with your casting? Do you start with the cinematic logistics? How do you start breaking it down? Because this is so action-heavy in so many respects. And second unit action stuff is always a challenge, especially in close quarters, especially in confined areas, because of the need and the desire to want to change things up and keep it visually engaging. So how do you approach it? And how did you approach this one? Yeah, every script is different, really. I mean, every time I'll get a script, something in it will kind of spark to me, whether it's the characters, it's, it's the concept, it's the world, it's something about it that kind of pulls me in. And for Wire Room, it was the world itself of the Wire Room and surveillance. And, you know, one of my favorite films is The Conversation, that couple of movie from the 70s. Mm. So that idea of surveillance and listening in and... And all that kind of played into this and kind of intrigued me as a director to want to tell this story. And from there, it was, you know, you, you kind of work backwards and say, okay, so what, as an audience, how do I, like, what am I going to expect from this film and uh, visually and cinematically? So I'll start kind of designing that in my head and kind of working with the collaborators, the cinematographer, the production designer, and, and really just trying to flesh it out and bring it to life in the most realistic way possible. Uh, I feel like it just kind of kind of snowballs from there. Was it difficult to cast this? I know you brought Texas Battle back for this one. He plays the sheriff. He was all, you worked with him in Hard Kill, but I'm curious about the casting on this one. Yeah, every film is it's challenging casting. Is I, I totally agree with the directors who say casting 75, 90 percent of the job because if you cast the right actor, your job is. It, it, it's a like they, they know that they have a strong take on the character and they're going to bring it 100 percent so it's always yeah it's always tricky to pick out the right actors and you always as a director you always sort of enjoy working with actors that you have that shorthand in chemistry with texas is one of those actors that yeah he's, i've worked with a few times and he's, he's a lot of fun and i know he can turn it on and i know he can kind of can work with him and, and develop an interesting take on the character. So, yeah, I mean, casting is, is, is really critical, and it was it was an important one on this. Thankfully, I feel like we got, uh, you know, a really great core cast with Kevin, Oliver, Texas. They, just, they, all, they all crushed it. You really did. I mean, Oliver just, he leaps off the screen does, as, yeah. as Eddie Flynn. I, I can see him getting bigger and bigger over the next few years. Oh, absolutely. I, I saw him in a film a few years ago, The Rising Hawk, and he stood out for me there. But he didn't. He wasn't as prominent as he is here and is integral to the story. So I see growth just in that between those two films that I've seen him in now. So I'm so impressed. Now, I have to ask you, what led you to Cameron Douglas? I interviewed Cam the other week about another film, and he said, just wait till you see. I'm in Wire Room. Just wait till you see it. And he wouldn't tell me anything, just that. 
Well, now that I've seen it, and this is like so against type for what you'd expect from Cam. Really? I'm curious what led you to casting him in this very quirky character. Yeah, he is definitely plays a, a kind of funny quirky character in this. I thought it was different. Um, I, you know, originally, actually, I, I don't know. If it was, I was considering him casting him as Eddie, actually. So there's a back and forth, and then I ended up going with Oliver, obviously. And I still really enjoyed meeting with Cameron. So I was like, oh man, let's find a role for, for Cameron on this. And and then so I, you know, I was like, well, what about the officer Mike? And just and actually, once I cast him, I expanded that role a bit because I felt like he's such a unique actor, an interesting actor. So I was like, oh, I can kind of make this role feel more different and unique. So yeah, he was, he was a cool guy, a lot of fun to work with. I think he, he's one of those actors that he knows how to turn it on and mm -hmm. bring something well, I'm glad you expanded the character because that built so much tension for me as every time you know you've got Justin sitting there at the monitors and suddenly something is behind him or anytime you've got that over the shoulder shot of Justin staring at the monitors you don't know what's lurking because of the fact that Cam's character has shown up already and scared the bejeebus out of him so it really helped with a lot of your editing choices for your camera angles in building tension. You didn't know when, you know, what was coming out of the woodwork. And I really love that. I appreciate that. Yeah, I didn't, now that you point that out, I could totally see how that would build uh, even more tension because you're not sure is this guy, like, what is this guy's motives? I mean, is he a good guy, is a bad guy, what's going on? Is he going to pop in again on him? So that was, that was that's, that's great that you noticed that. Yeah, I mean, and very chatty for a guard. Uh, <laughs> very chatty for a guard. I've got one last question for you, Matt. You've really ensconced yourself now in this action genre. What did, and every time I know in each one, things get divvied up with the style of shooting, with the kind of action that gets employed, with the story itself in terms of the gravitas or the tension but i'm curious what you learned about yourself as a filmmaker making wire room that you can now take forward into your future projects yeah that's a great question i feel like every film is an experience and every project is a way to expand your tools as a storyteller as a director and for wire room specifically i felt like it really taught me the importance of a great story, a great hook, and working with, you know, really cool, fun actors like Oliver and Kevin and the importance of building that chemistry between the between the characters because without that, I mean, you got 90 minutes of two people staring at each other through a screen, but <laughs> build that chemistry and, and make it kind of come off um, on camera, then you're in a good place. So that was the kind of fun lesson that I learned on this one. Well, job well done, Matt. You've got me. I'm a big fan of your work, thanks to the last pack of films that you've been doing, and I can't wait to see what you do next. Thank you. Yeah, it was a pleasure. Um, I'm glad to, to know that you're you're a fan, and uh, hopefully, yeah, just keep, keep making fun movies, entertaining movies. I mean, my thing is I just love entertaining audiences so much that. Well, you, def that you definitely have entertained me with all of these films, so I want more. I want more. Yeah. I'll <laughs> keep doing it as long as they keep sending me the movies. We'll, we'll, see. well, thank you so Matt, much, Matt, and I hope we get to chat again in the future. I hope so, too. It was a pleasure. Thank you so much. Have a great rest of your week. Bye-bye.
And that was Matt Escandari talking about the wire room. It really is. It gets to the point of being a nail biter, but it's always fun. But there's a lot of technical acumen in this one, and I really appreciate that. Uh, and I think it's one of Matt's best works, in all honesty. So see it. As I said, it's available digital, VOD. Um, right now, I've got texts and emails out to our publicist trying to find out where John Barker is. He's probably wandering around somewhere in Toronto right now. Uh, Pam, can you pop in a um, pop in a, a PSA for a minute here? Can you do that? It's Olivia Munn with my shelter pets, Frankie and Chance. Say hi, guys. When I adopted them, I discovered that they both have incredible personalities. Chance's sole purpose in life is to love and to be loved. Frankie is a little bit of a scoundrel and always entertaining. They're a little bit of a lot of things, but they're all pure love. Adopt pure love at theshelterpetproject.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council, the Humane Society of the United States, and Maddie's Fund. back still trying to hunt down john barker and his publicist who also isn't answering uh something must be going on uh up in toronto so we're just gonna fill in here um i had the chance a couple weeks ago to see the first 30 minutes of netflix's new wendell and wild stop motion animation uh it is directed by writer, written and directed by Henry Selleck. You know Henry best for Coraline, uh, that was done about a decade ago uh, for Leica, and uh, Henry hasn't been around much, but he's back with a vengeance here uh, with Wendell and Wild. It is an animated tale about scheming demon brothers Wendell and Wild. Keegan-Michael Key voices Wendell, and Jordan Peele himself voices, voices Wild. And I have to say, Jordan Peele is a co-writer on this, uh, along with Henry. Who would have thought Jordan Peele stop-motion animation? Uh, and these two, Wendell and Wild, they enlist the aid of a young girl, a young teen, Cat Elliot. Her parents were, died uh, when she was very young. She's bounced around, you can tell. She's been in juvie, uh, a few other unkind things. But they enlist her to, help, to summon them to the land of the living. You know, they're down below. They're demons. They're down below. But they want to come up here because they have some bright ideas for what they can do in the world. And, but Cat wants something in return. What that is, I don't know yet since I only got to see 30 minutes of the film. People in Toronto, I think, got to see the whole thing last night. Uh, it was finally finished. And it had its uh, premiere at Toronto Film Fest. Uh, but it's just in what I saw. Comedy abounds. But it's devilishly delightful. It is absolute. The color, the cinematography, the design, the story... 
everything is just absolutely wonderful, just in what I've seen. I mean, I can't wait to, uh, f- to see the entire film, which I hope will be much sooner rather than later. But after seeing 30 Minutes, I did get to speak with Henry Selleck. The last time Henry and I got to talk, was for, we did a sit-down for Coraline. So it's been a long time. Uh, Wendelin Wilde, the voice talents, in addition to Keegan-Michael Key and Jordan Peele, Lyric Ross, Angela Bassett, James Hong, Tamara Smart, Tantu Cardinal, uh, just amazing, Ving Rhames, uh, who plays the father of Wendelin Wilde. Uh, and it's pretty wild, let me tell you. So we couldn't talk about a whole lot. Because can't give anything away, and especially since I hadn't seen the whole film. But Henry talked about this 20-year journey to bring this film to life. And gave a few little hints on the technical beauty of this stop-motion animation. So take a listen to my interview with writer-director Henry Selleck talking Wendell and Wilde. Hello, Henry. I am so happy to get to speak with you again. It's been way too long since Coraline. Yeah, your name was familiar. I wish I saw your face, but not today. (laughs) You don't need to see my face. All I know is I saw 30 minutes of Wendell and Wilde. Henry, you have only gotten better with age. Nice of you to say. I am enthralled with just this first 30 minutes of film, Henry. Well, I can't wait till you see the whole, whole movie. Oh, neither can I. I'm already going crazy. As I, as I said to the publicist, I said, you know, if this were a book, I'd be turning the pages faster than my eyes could read because it's so engaging, so engrossing. Right off the bat, you're hitting us. We've got a diversity of characters You've got, within the story, themes that are so prevalent and important in today's world. Loss, grief, bullying, friendship, bravery, death, the idea of individuality and inquisitiveness. All of that we see in this first 30 minutes. And you give us Gabby the goat. Come on, Henry. (laughs) Yeah. Everyone loves Gabby. I'm telling you, I want merchandising. I want Gabby merchandising. I'm telling you right now. Yeah, I hope they do something. I don't I don't know if Netflix has figured out that aspect of things, but they certainly should. <laughs> they darn well should. This is just, I love the darkness that we're seeing initially. And I, that's what I loved about Coraline as well was the darkness. But then there's always light that emerges and I see that here again uh, not just in the story I'm hoping for lightness at the end if I don't get it I'll still be very happy the- you get some. it's going to be it's going to be a little more nuanced uh, than the regular uh, animation lightness but you know I love what you do in keeping with this darkness and this mystery and the underworld and Wendell and Wilde, who are just, they're two wild and crazy guys, I gotta say it, the colors that you use in bringing these worlds to life, the purples, the greens, I love how you chose skirt fabric, uniform fabric for the kids, 
of red and blue because red and blue when you mix them on the color wheel make purple and we see a lot of purples and then the darker greens the grays just on every level henry the intricacy and that beauty of the stop-motion characters and the world and all the little details. You've blown my mind. Where did you start with this? How did you start with this? Well, it's um, you know, a long process. You, know, you, you saw the presentation earlier today. I did not because I'm not near oh, okay. a computer to zoom in. So. Oh, okay. All right. Well, then, you know, I mean, it, it actually it, it has the longest... Uh, gestation period of anything I've worked on because it actually began uh, the idea 20 years ago when my kids, my grown sons were little when they were like two and eight um, I did a little sketch of them as demon brothers because they could <laughs> they could be demonic at times and, and play it up and from that sketch I sort of got the idea like well I'm going to write a short story about two demon brothers not but not as little kids as older demons and I I wrote something up um, and I didn't know if I was going to try to maybe get it published a kids book or in the New Yorker but um, I basically came up with all the same characters and you know demons escaping from the you know from hell to they want to make it bigger the land of the living um, and you know Sister Halle and Cat and Raul, a couple of name changes or adjustments. Uh, Mandrake became Manberg. Uh, but, you know, the basic idea was there. And then um, just, you know, sent it out a few places and no one was interested in publishing it. Just put it away. And then um, over the years, my manager, who's also a producer on this show, Ellen Goldsmith Vane, she kept saying, we got to do something with that. We got to do some of that, and uh, and then in 2012, when uh, Keen Peel, their show began on uh, what was it Comedy Central. Mm-hmm. I got out about it. I started watching it. I was dazzled. Their, their range, their intelligence, their humor. I you know I felt they were the best comedy duo I'd ever seen in my life. And after like two two years, I finally said, look at. I'm going to just reach out to them because they have something I can't do. They have a type of humor. I would love to mix that in one of my projects. So I, I we sat and they're both, they knew who I was. That's always a good start. And they were interested in doing voice work, but um, Jordan wanted to do more. So we, we met and it turned out he was a huge fan of stop motion animation. He really knew my work and he, um, he wanted to hear my ideas you know, one in particular, and it was, it was Wendell Wild. I just, you know, I watched Key and Peel, Key and Peel, Wendell and Wild, Wendell and Wild. <laughs> they became, yeah, that could work. So I pitched that idea and I gave him the pages, and he, um, he said, Look, I don't want to just do a voice. I started a new company, um, Monkey Paw Productions, and this is my last season on Key and Peel, and we want to do shows like, like this. Uh, but I'd like to be involved as a producer and a, and a, and a writer. And uh, I was, you know, super happy. So we ended up getting together and working things out. And he made some very strong 
and really smart suggestions on changing uh, uh, things about what characters would do. And then that inspired me to sort of root this, uh, what is it, a comedy, horror, fantasy, drama? I don't even know what you call this film, but, you know, what genre it fits in. But it inspired me to sort of um, give some weight to uh, some of the things and figure out well, who are the real villains going to be. But we were really good collaborators. Uh, and we moved along, moved along, and then he had to go <laughs> shoot his first movie. <laughs> and they verified it's going to fail in the box office. So we got to go pitch this week. We got to pitch it this week. It, you know, it went a while. He said, because one of my movies is bomb. I said, well, no. If your movie's a bomb, it won't matter if we pitch it this week. And it's not going to be a bomb, because I knew it was going to be great. And then everything changed. It, as the movie comes out, everyone wants to be in business with Jordan, and we take the project a couple of places, and Netflix was the place that told us what we wanted to hear, which was, we don't just develop things. If we like you and we like your project, we will find a way to make it. So consider our, our saying yes up front a green light. It may take a few years. And so that's that's who we went with. And um, wow. you know, from there, it just sort of kept evolving, evolving, and hiring artists and finding a look and building a team. Got to ask you about working with Peter Song, bringing him in as your DP here. He had he did such great work uh, with the camera lighting on Coraline, so I'm not yeah. surprised you brought him back. But I'm curious how the two of you worked to develop the visual tonal bandwidth that envelops and blankets this stop motion world. Peter Sorg is a genius in his way, and he also brings joy. He, he brings um, you know we we basically came up with sort of like okay here's. Here's some stills from some movies we think are appropriate for this story, and we developed this common language of what what we felt was the right look for each time. And at, at a certain point, you know, you just give someone like that their their freedom because you kind of work it out beforehand, and then uh, as off the races. But uh, yeah, I love I love Peter Sorg. Um, he did so much and brought so much to Wonder Wild. Mm-hmm. Well, the look is beautiful. And I know that Jimmy's going to cut us off here. So I, I hope we get to chat at length when the film is done and I see the entire thing. Because I have so many questions about what I've already seen. But need well, to... I, better hear, I better hear from you. Otherwise, I'll think you didn't like the movie. Henry, I already love this movie. And I am positive I'm going to love it even more when it's done. Come on, you hired Tantu Cardinal to do voicing. <laughs> you know, come on. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that made me happy. Yeah, yeah that was uh, that was fun. All of your voicing, lyric is masterful. She really make makes cat pop. Yeah, yeah. She's she's like the treasure of the of a finding voice of casting someone who could carry probably the most difficult part. Yeah. So I look forward to the full film. I can't wait, and we will definitely, if I have to hunt you down, I will do it, and we will talk again about Wendell and Wilde. All right. I look forward to it, Debbie. Oh, Henry, thank you. Okay, then. Take care. But You too. Bye-bye. And that was Henry Selleck talking about 
Wendelin Wild. And hey, if you go to BehindTheLensOnline.net, the interview is there. Uh, it is in a video package with new images that were just released last week along with the trailer for Wendelin Wild. Uh, so check it out. And yes, hopefully Henry and I will, as I will hunt him down if I have to once I see the film, uh, to talk to him about the entire film. Uh, speaking about hunting down, uh, we've got the publicist for the Umbrella Men trying to hunt down John Barker in Toronto. So far, it has proved unsuccessful. So, <laughs> with that in mind, she's actually physically, I was just on the phone with her, walking from location to location. Up, oh, and we have a phone ringing. Oh, let's see who it is. Pam's answered it. We're on tenterhooks here. Okay, we're waiting. We're waiting. She's nodding her head. I'm giving you a phone play-by-play, -play, people. Um, it's pretty funny. Oh, my God. I... <laughs> okay, is it's somebody? It's somebody. Is it Annie or John? Okay, well, we'll find out. Hello? Hello, how are you? Is this John Barker? Unfortunately, it's not. I wish I was. But I'm his producer, Dan Javits. Oh, hello, Dan. Well, you are a surprise since John uh, appears to be missing in action here. But I, am... I don't think I can be John, but I can be his <laughs> next best. <laughs> well, I must congratulate you on The Umbrella Men. This Thank you so much. is so much fun. I really, I, I just love this film. Uh, it, it, Thank this, you. This really does. It's, you know, you're giving Danny Ocean a run for his money with this one. <laughs> uh, so that, that's, that's music to our ears It truly ears. Truly is absolutely Fantastic um, You know you've got Great visual tone it's light It's bright but what I love is That we're introduced to The culture the South African culture mm. With the whole idea Of the carnival the umbrella Men the maulers and what I love is I'm from Philadelphia, and our oldest tradition, the oldest folk parade in the United States, is the Mummers Parade. And it has roots, it, the mummery has roots going back to South Africa and then into new, in, down into Louisiana for this, right. celebra this New Year's celebration. So uh, to, for me to watch the Umbrella Men, well, and to see them carrying little umbrellas and things, because that's all historic. Historic. Um, yeah. Well, you know that a lot. A lot of the music originated from the American um, Navy ships that used to call in at Cape Town, mm -hmm. and they would bring their marching bands. And the music in the late, uh, even in the late 20th century, I mean, early early 20th century, turn of the century, that's music got 
infused into the minstrel culture. Mm-hmm. And even the black face was part of the the the, the, the parade um, until about the 60s and the 70s, and they did away with the black face. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, the Mummer Parade in Philadelphia, same thing. Uh, the black face was a big mm. part of that. But what, you know, what John has put together here visually is just gorgeous. We really get a sense of community and the town and the history, but we get a lot of fun and we get to to meet all these different characters. And this is one of the great things and a testament to you as a producer, Dan, is that you didn't short shrift any of the characters. Even though they might, yeah. we know who they are. You know, with the casting is so perfect, but we know who yeah. these characters are and where they fit into this small community. And, you know, that the casting is so key here. And these are all actors that the American audience, the Western audience, isn't going to really know. Uh, yeah. But boy, oh boy, you knocked it out of the park. Jock De Silva. <laughs> Jeez, that guy! He's, I know he, he's he, he's the latest screen heartthrob. I'm, I, I I don't think there's a woman who left the, especially the woman who he, left the cinema who who wasn't like uh, feeling feelings and things like that. He's got all the goods as a leading man. Um, stand out for all me. All the qualities of a leading oh, man, exactly. He's exactly. got the looks. He's suave. He's playful. Um, he can be mm-hmm. serious. Um, you know, he's, he's the real deal, but I got to say, so, that's so inspiring to hear that. Oh, you. you know, June Van yeah. Merch, I just fell in love with her as Auntie Val. Oh my God. She is hysterical. She's got a dry wit. Uh, <laughs> you know, she walks into one room and it's like, Auntie V, you're smoking. And she goes, it's a <laughs> joint. And, <laughs> yeah, and explaining, it's like, you need help. I'll get my girls. Girls? <laughs> what girls? Working girls. Exactly. And it's just, girls? and she deadpans, and it's, she's so dry. She's uh, hilarious. She steals every scene she's in. Just, absolutely. She's great. I know exactly what you said. When we got her, we were so happy because she's a bit of an institution, a legend. In South Africa, she's done theater. She's done movies. And she's, she's just spot on. She's just right on the mark. She is um, fabulous. And then you bring in Daniel yeah. Barnett as Mr. El Fontaine, the bank president. And he's Wasn't just... He brilliant? He is a... He's so funny. He is a... He's sleazy fun is how Thank I described you. it. He's sleazy yeah. fun. And, sleazy fun. <laughs> but, and then you, you surround them. Bronte Snell stands out as Mila. Keenan Addison mm. as Morty. He's another yeah, one. He's yeah. got great comedic timing. Yeah, I know. He's a brilliant actor. Keenan is a brilliant actor. He did another film for us called Atlanta, which is set in a small town north of Cape Town, where he plays a gangster's um, uh, ineffectual son who can't really get past his father. And yeah, he was a completely different character, but he, he still does comedy, and he was, he was in serious drama as a gangster. So yeah, Keenan is a delight. Well, you know, and you've got this great cast. They really inhabit the characters. They make this so resonant, so palpable. You believe every minute. But then this great script 
It's written by John and Philip Roberts. They bring in the cultural history, the whole idea of apartheid mm. diamonds. Uh, but you kick mm. off the film to something everybody can relate to. Family mm. showing up for a funeral and how family does not get along even at a funeral. Exactly, exactly. Everybody around the world can relate to that. Uh, <laughs> so right away, you capture everybody with that. And this, and as the story unfolds, what I love is you knocked it out of the park with your editor, with Saki Burke as your editor. You like the editing, yeah. I mm-hmm. love the editing. The pacing is so well done, and that's so key in a heist film like this. Because you want yeah. the tension of the heist, but you also want the fun and the frivolity of the, you know... The tone. The, the foibles. Tone. Keep the tone light. Yeah, the yeah, foibles the that are yeah. happening. It's like, uh-oh, mm. we drilled... Oh, no, we, we're supposed to be over there, not here. We drilled in the wrong spot. <laughs> you know, it's just a comedy of errors. But you've got to time that comedy right. And Saki's editing really embraces that. But what it also does is, thanks to the great scoring... The musical score, the jazz. That's a character in the film. Oh. That is a character. That jazz element, that right there Mm -hmm. makes you think heist, criminals, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, Al Capone. Uh, And Mm -hmm. the way Saki edits, there is a fluidity and a lyricism to the edit of the story Mm -hmm. that corresponds to the musicality of the film and it it comes across so beautifully you know for you as the producer how challenging was it with juggling all these you know all these balls in the air that you have to worry about as a producer to be honest when we were happy with the script and and john decided you know when we when we when we went into the shoot my partners and I, the producer, there were three of us, actually five of us in total, including John. But um, uh, when we started it, the the whole atmosphere on the set and the whole um, uh, joy that people had to finally be making this film, you know, it took John 15 years to get this film to us. Wow. And we finally financed it for him. I mean, with him, but but basically we, we found most of the money. But, but it, it, you know, he laughs. He always tells the story. It took me 15 years to 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 write it and and and, and get it to the get it to Dan and Joel and to Peter, and then they made it in three months. So it it it, uh, it was obviously meant to happen with us. And John John is so uh, such an accomplished professional. He's made a lot of films, and he delivered a film to the highest level that we could ever have hoped for. And we did a lot of work on the script uh, as producers with him. Not not an enormous amount, but we, we kind of uh, tailored it and polished it and, and, and tweaked it here and there. And then we just gave it and said, off you go. And then when we when we were watching The Rushes, we all said, Jesus, we've got gold here. This is gold. This is beautiful. This is funny. This is The acting is in sync. It's completely in sync with the script. The characters are coming out so large and lifelike. And uh, it was a pleasure. The whole process was a complete pleasure. It was, it was nothing. There was nothing really that you know. Often you have a film and you, 
you say, oh, but then, you know, we hit this wall and then we had this problem and one of the actresses didn't, didn't, didn't show up or whatever it is. Uh, but not at all. Nothing in the least bit to cause any distress. And when we finally got to the edit suite, we, we decided we were going to put some, some big numbers in there. We've got some fairly well-known reggae. We've got mm-hmm. some, uh, that song Heaven. You know, I don't know mm-hmm. if you've ever seen the Heaven scene. Yes, Heaven. I do. Yep. Must be Missing an angel. That song, yeah, an angel, exactly. That song, we decided to use it. It, co- it came at a price, but it was a good choice. And then the score written by Carl Shepard, who's a very, very talented uh, jazz composer and pianist. He just, he, he was the one who hit the ball out the park in terms of music. He just delivered such a wonderful, you know, uh, compliment to the to the action. And at first I was worried that the the jazz would be a little bit too sophisticated and, and intellectual but oh, he made no. it he brought it to a level where it was actually part of the action and you don't you don't feel it's uh, disconnected at all I love the so, score so much Dan I would I would love to see a soundtrack for this film the music no is, we're gonna bring one out uh, we're gonna bring one out definitely. wonderful you know what was it about this script when you first read it what leapt out at you? What said, Dan, make us, get us money, make this film? <laughs> um, you know, the, the combination of everything you said at the beginning of this of this interview was what attracted all of us to the story. It was such a, a, a great melding and weaving of, of things that are entertaining, at the same time illuminating, as far as Cape Town and the culture... The, the, a minority culture, a culture that lives under the mountain there, underneath the mountain, that has such a liveliness and rich history that needed their story had to be told, although it's told through a great, um, you know, drama and a plot. But that it's one of the first films, I think it's probably the first film that is set there and is told about those people and is part of their culture because... District Six, you know the whole history that's told in the film. They, mm-hmm. they were, they were. Most of those people were displaced out of Cape Town to these windy uh, sand dunes far out of town. But these people managed to come back and stay in the Bow Cup. Some of them didn't get moved all the way out. They managed to retain a foothold there, just under the mountain, and that became an area called the Bow Cup. And uh, you know, it was wonderful when he brought when that was what was the subject. And I can see why. It had almost been made so many times, but it wasn't closed because, you know, you just we just needed to provide the money. But people loved the idea. Mm-hmm. This is a case of getting the, the, the finance together at the end. And we, we were drawn to the characters. Obviously, those are the main things that drive the story. Yeah. And the, the Cape Heister, the Cape, Cape Heist Caper genre is very popular. And then we found these brilliant uh, um, cast. But then the film made itself after that. So now you've got a couple more screenings at Toronto Film Festival, correct? That's correct. You've got another. We've got just got another two, three, three public screenings. Wow! And you're fresh off the international premiere uh, on Saturday, that uh, I understand was was a sellout crowd. It was a sold out full house. We had a, we had a very beautiful audience. They were very very generous. And uh, we we walked the streets of Toronto with umbrellas, the entire cast and crew, <laughs> not the entire, but we came through the streets to the cinema together. 
And uh, people just loved it. Afterwards, they stayed. They wouldn't leave the cinema. The Q&A went extremely well. And then now uh, we're showing it again on Wednesday at 9.30. Uh, same venue. And then we're showing it one more time on the 16th of September, uh, also in the morning, a public screening. So, yeah. Oh, uh, anybody that is in Toronto, if you if you have tickets, if you press that haven't seen it, this movie is it is the indie gem. This is this <laughs> okay. this is one of my indie gems of the year. I can tell you that much, Dan. Um, oh, Debbie, that is so wonderful to hear that. Honestly, on every That's level, so wonderful. On every level. Now, any distribution bites yet? Yeah, we've got some distribution. You're talking about sales and stuff. Yes. Well, we had our first industry screening this morning uh, at at twelve thirty, and there was a very good turnout of 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 of, of distributors and mm-hmm. buyers um, from one of some of the biggest studios. I won't mention any names, but we we had a very good turnout, and we've already got interest from Japan, Korea, um, you know, North America. I think we'll probably close. I hope before we leave here. Oh my so, goodness! Yeah, there's, there's good uptake. There's good uptake. Now, what are the plans after Toronto? Will there be more festivals, even if you close any distribution deals? Uh, well, we've got a film festival coming up in London called Film Africa, that, but it's not announced, so you can't announce that. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, that's embargoed. Sorry, my, my brother just made a very a rude face at me. Um, <laughs> but, but, okay, we, we, we're thinking of, being, of going to that one. And we've 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 looking at possibly hopefully we'll make it into either Rotterdam or or Berlin. We'll see what happens. That's coming up now. Well, all I know is everybody should see the Umbrella Men. Uh, I would love to see this actually hit screens and be, you know, considered for Oscar for an international submission. Uh, From your lips to God's ears, that's all I can say. And that's how much I love this film. Um, <laughs> oh. Dan, I can't thank you enough for jumping in on here in a pinch since John yeah. is off out and about somewhere, probably traips, yeah. traips gallivanting, in, gallivanting, gallivanting. I at least hope he ha- I hope he has his umbrella to promote the film while he's gallivanting. Um, he, he always carries an umbrella now wherever he goes. <laughs> it's his calling card. Oh, Dan, this this has been so lovely getting to speak with you. I want to see more films that you're producing. Well, we're going to do the Umbrella Men 2 starting it. We're shooting it in December. Oh. We actually will be shooting during the Minstrel uh, Parade on, on <gasps> the 2nd of, of January. How wonderful. So that's actually going to be part of the film, the actual parade this year. And uh, we're going to bring back some of the, all, the well-loved characters, and they're going to be doing it all over again. But this time it's a whole other story set in prison and prison break and it's, it's going to be very exciting oh, to, does it, to see the second one. Does so that, we have to bring it back to Toronto next year. Does that mean the general is going to pop up again since we're going to be in prison? Uh, maybe the general's a major figure now. Oh, the general becomes a major figure okay. in That's right. All right. Exactly. And I hope, Aunt, yeah, I hope Auntie V is back. Who? Which, oh, ETV. Auntie, Auntie Valerie needs to be back. Oh, Andy Velzer, absolutely. No, she leads, uh, she leads the, the, the posse when, they, when, they, when they, they come and rescue these guys out of the prison. She's, the, she's one of the main <laughs> um, jailbreakers. 
Oh, my God. Oh, now I'm excited for the Umbrella Men, too. Now I'm excited wow. for that already. Oh, my That's God. That's great. That's I... exactly what's coming soon. So oh, hopefully, yeah. Dan, I can't wait. I cannot wait. We will have to chat again about the Umbrella Men, too, as, as you get oh, deep yeah. into production. Wow. Yeah. Oh. And the next time, I promise it'll be John himself. Uh, I won't be the stand-in. I think you're a lovely stand-in. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you're the, you. Hey, and plus, you're the man with the money. You're the man with the checkbook. Right. So right. that always that's trumps a, everybody a, else. So Exactly. Oh, seriously. Seriously. Oh, seriously, Dan. I do hope I get to speak with you again. Um, this has been an absolute delight. And that's so pleasant. Same for me. Same for me. And absolute I, delight. And I'm so glad you love our film so much. I do. It's a work of labor of love. It was a labor of love. You know, I, and I, I will I will go on the record right now and say it. I love the Umbrella Men more than I like George Clooney's Ocean's Eleven. <laughs> oh, wow. That's quite a quote. OK, that I'm going to put on the poster now. I do. I love the Umbrella Men more than George Clooney's Ocean Eleven. <laughs> yes. Oh, Debbie, that is amazing. That's amazing. Oh. Great, great stuff. Well, great Dan, stuff, you go have a wonderful rest of your day in Toronto, mm-hmm. and in hopefully you'll have more sellout screenings this week. I hope so too. Yeah. Oh, Dan, a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you very, very much. I really appreciate your time and, and energy. Oh, thank you. Bye bye. Okay. Bye-bye now. Bye. And a last-minute stand-in. The producer, the man with the money for the Umbrella Men. I like talking to the people who who have the checkbook in their hand. That's always very helpful. Well, hopefully, maybe next week, I'll have to talk to uh, the publicist. I'll talk to Annie and see if we can work something out. Maybe get uh, get John to call in next week uh, to talk about the directorial aspects of and this 15-year journey. Henry Selleck took him 20 years to get Wendell and Wilde made. Uh, John is taking him 15 years to get the Umbrella Men made. So I want to hear I want to hear about his journey uh, and his, the logistics of making the Umbrella Men. So fingers crossed that we can make it happen next week. So that is all the time we have today. Of course we ran over. People, you know we run over. Every every week we run over because I don't want to cut any of our talent off. I want them to be able to really talk about their films and so that you can hear. I don't want to edit things. I want everybody to hear, you know, the unvarnished fun. So until next week. I'm Debbie Elias. This is Behind the Lens.